Welcome to this episode of How We Made That App. I'm your host, Madhukar Kumar. I started off my career as a developer, eventually got into product management, and then finally into marketing. Today, I have with me Primal Shah. He's the co-founder as well as the head of engineering for a company called Sixth Sense, a company that helps marketers with better data and better segmentation. Welcome to the show, Pramil. I know we have been talking quite a lot and uh, you're one of my favorite customers, our favorite customers. But I, I always look forward to the conversations because I just love to learn about, you know, what your company is doing, what your engineering team is doing, given the background. So I wanted to start off with a little bit, uh, tell, tell our audience your background. How did you get into engineering? Where did you start? How did you eventually get to Sixth Sense? Yeah, so uh, I was born in uh, India and uh, in, in Bombay. And my uh, dad has a business which was helping the banks do a lot of the reconciliation of their spend. Uh, and he had a lot of computers and this is like in the 80s. Uh, so I got into like, you know, just playing around and, you know, building computers uh, early on. And that passion kept growing into software engineering, uh, you know, learned all the different languages and eventually went to school for computer science uh, wow. in India. And then uh, I moved to the US, uh, was doing a bit of, uh, you know, software, net, like a computer networking uh, and uh, computer science and eventually found my passion uh, building software and uh, websites and like large scale uh, systems. And yeah, the rest is history. I was with some students last week at UC Santa Barbara. I was just blown away by the kind of stuff that they're doing now in the university. I remember when I did my master's in software engineering, we were just told, okay, here are the big concepts, mm -hmm. right? But we didn't really get into the hands-on programming till we were in like a Java 101 class. And then we built out a calculator. And today now I look at kids and they are, building stuff like this team I was working with, they have this racing car and they have these sensors and they're using the data from those sensors using MQTT and then putting that data into our database single store and then building applications. What was your experience like in the engineering school? Did you get to see a lot of hands-on stuff or was it mostly about the principles? Like I remember even the database class that I had was purely just principles and algorithms. It's nothing to do with real databases. We actually got a lot of practical experience uh, while in, in the school projects. Uh, there was a whole web development class where we actually had to like design and have a running website with a database attached to it. And in fact, even in like uh, India, when we were in school, the final year project, we actually built a whole like uh, appointment system. So properly working, you know, at that point, ASP.net or whatever yeah. those things, but ASP. And then uh, database classes, we did uh, special databases, hierarchical databases. We had to build a whole application with Google Maps and like find the nearest, you know, restaurant and stuff like that. So it was definitely pretty interesting and uh, you would get a lot of practical experience when, you know, find your own bugs and solve real problems. What was the database at that time? I, I remember when I started working, the first job, it was a SQL server database, which was commercial. 
But I don't remember, for me at least, that there was an open source database like MySQL at that time. Do you remember what, where you started off with? Yeah, I think this was like uh, we used to play around with MySQL. Uh, I think when you're in college, especially in the US, you probably get like licenses to Oracle, like the you know the the skinny versions and um, whatever features they have. It's probably my memory. Uh, we weren't too much into Postgres, but yeah. Yeah, I remember like even with uh, Oracle, they used to they used to come in CDs, mm-hmm. and uh, first you install Red Hat, the open source version. Then you install the database, and then when you write up the application that picked up the data and showed it in rows and columns, it was like such a magical experience. Yeah. How's that changed? Like, what do you feel about it now? And if you were to start over and if you were to do things all over again, but today, like, what what would you choose to start off with? Yeah, I mean, I I, I really love MySQL. It's just you know easy to get started locally, uh, and there are so many commercial and like even AWS has so much support for it. You start off with that, especially when you're when you're doing more like a small size transactional database. You know, doing your POCs. A lot of people love Postgres. My flavor is MySQL. Uh, <laughs> start off with like a Python based web framework, or you know, if you're doing with something very API heavy, then maybe something like a drop wizard in Java. And yeah, I mean, start with like, you know, simple HTML stuff and then make it more complex as time goes. I've spent a lot of my career like optimizing things in MySQL and like really comfortable doing that. And when obviously when you go to the very large parallel databases, then that's where you have to like do the right research as to what is what you can get your hands on as fast as possible. Yeah, I remember like uh, with MySQL, I used to work for a company called Optimost. It was acquired by Interwoven where I worked with. And Optimost was one of the original web analytics company. And we used to get all that data into MySQL. Mm-hmm. And there was a team of five people in New York, if I remember correctly. They were just there to optimize MySQL. Because as it got bigger and bigger, you know, you had to do partitions, you mm-hmm. had to do sharding, then you had to do clustering, then you had to do DRM, talking about like at least 14, 15 years ago. And it was like a massive rocket science operation of trying to manage the data and make sure it never, you know, you don't lose the data, but also run analytics. But before we go further down that path, tell me or tell our audience, what is Sixth Sense? That's the company that you co-founded. And what does it do? Who do you sell it to? What is it used for? We started in uh, 2013. The original mission mm-hmm. was, uh, you know, we are predictive analytics for B2B sales and marketing. And the problem we were solving is allowing people, you know, who are selling and people who are marketing to understand who is actually interested in buying their product at that time. So whenever you are doing outreach, it is not cold. Uh, you are, you know, somebody is researching your product. Somebody wants to buy something that you are selling. And that helps you cut down on time, effort, money, etc. to open pipeline. And eventually it's as, you know, you have a great product, you're going to make the sale. So that that was whole premise behind the idea. The Our fundamentals have not changed. The only way we deliver the product 
what kind of like different activation channels that we provide has changed over the years. You know, we help you do advertising, we help you do email, we hyper help you hyper personalize email, help you do you know social channels like LinkedIn, Google, Meta, and uh, help the salespeople really dig into what their accounts have been doing, so that whenever they are having a conversation, they can tailor it correctly and exactly figure out like. You know, are the prospects looking at their competitors? Uh, how many times have they been to my website? What kind of high-value pages are they seeing? What are the other research they're doing across the internet? So we are now a big intent data provider where we get millions of like website visits from different high-value publishers every day that we collate and we show it in a single pane of glass to our customers, whether you're a marketer or a seller. That scale just is mind-boggling, at least to me, because we we use at single store, we use Sixth Sense as well. It's one of our favorite products, and we use it to you know basically do our go-to-market. So we figure out our ideal customer profile, then we use Sixth Sense to enrich that data, and then we have a very targeted campaigns going. But uh, tell us, tell me, or tell our audience a little bit about how you started the app. Like when you thought about the idea, I'm assuming you were sitting in front of the computer and thinking, okay, what database should I have? What should be the architecture? Is this something that I'm going to... And I'm sure at that time there was no Kubernetes, there was no Mm -hmm. cloud. Tell me a little bit about your thinking process. Yeah, Uh, we were very fortunate to have signed up one of uh, Fortune 500 companies in the very beginning. So we had... uh, you know, a very decent scale of data coming into the system on a daily basis. And, and you were collecting the data directly through third party or how was the data? So in, in the beginning, uh, you know, we had an FTP server. The customer used to constantly on an hourly basis drop, they would upload the data. Yeah, drop their website visitor logs to us. And, you know, think about the uh, time in 2006, 7, 8 where Hadoop like really came up to say, hey, you are collecting so much data for yourself that you're not able to process it in a mm-hmm. single you know, threaded environment. Now, this is a parallel processing system. We had to basically build a, a platform that would get all of our customers' data on hmm. a daily basis or hourly basis and like process it every day and give them insights on top of it. So uh, we uh, had some experience with uh, Hadoop and Hive uh, at that time. So we use that platform as like our big data platform. And then we use MySQL as our metadata layer hmm. to store things like who is the customer, what products are they, you know, what who are the users, etc. So there was a clear separation of small data and big data in, in the platform. And then we had a bunch of um, uh, data processing frameworks uh, set up. Initially, we started off with, uh, uh, you know, everybody wants to run cron jobs, right? So we yeah. had like, uh, we had a server where we're running cron jobs and then we're like oh mesos uh, has uh, come up and they have uh, chronos which is used for cron jobs so we set up chronos uh, and it was great and then there was a, another system called marathon i think in mesos which yeah, used to use that. to run long running uh, uh, jobs and uh, things on a in a particular sequence and then we have a concept of a DAG, which is like a directed acyclical graph. So when we get our customers' data, we have to you know, process their web data, their CRM data, marketing automation, combine it, and then derive some insights. So 
internally there's a graph created from it and then oh. uh, i think initially we used uh, think one of those mesos frameworks to build it and then we actually built a in-house framework like an airflow and obviously over the over the years right as you said uh, uh, mesos had died but kubernetes has come up as like the you know the de facto container orchestration system so we migrated to it several years ago our web services are running on it our uh, whole dag framework is running on it we have hundreds of cron jobs long running jobs so we run like about 2 million containers a day like oh, doing wow. uh, all the processing across our customers as a customer is onboarded they the dag gets created all their data gets collected on a daily basis process everybody gets their own mini dag that gets run through the system so we have a lot of data and a lot of processing now and you know um, totally on aws so leveraging uh, most of their infrastructure and uh, you know running our hadoop frameworks our uh, kubernetes clusters on top of it when you say 2 million containers i cannot even imagine <laughs> <laughs> how many ec2s <clears throat> or how many uh, virtual machines you're running but but let's go back to to the original because i kind of love how all of this started and how where it is today in this massive scale so the whole idea was if i am a customer take my data and i remember ftp boy there used to be cyberduck i remember on uh, on on mac mm-hmm. which was a much later product but it allowed you to you know ftp your data and that's how i would share files even with myself for a very long time and then there was filezilla and what not it's interesting that now with the likes of s3 but also a bunch of other new technologies that came about we didn't realize that ftp actually died mm-hmm. i don't know if anybody still uses ftp but i remember there was a time where that was the only way that you could send files very large files over to different companies and then there is of course ssl another secure way of sending files so in your case companies would ftp their data periodically assuming a lot of manual work and then the cron jobs would process that data and then the output would be also data that goes back into an ftp folder for the customers is that how it started off yeah as? so as you said in the old in a very beginning you know people You know, the large companies they used to just dump their data on a regular basis, but then we build our like web tag collection system. So now we have a JavaScript tag sitting on their website. Data is continuously streaming in, uh, secure and all. Then we do all that processing, right? So we have to really understand. Okay, the day is done. Now we need to process yesterday's data. Some of it we do in real time. Some we do in batch. And then there are multiple ways of delivering. Uh, right we have our own product you can log in you can see the data we push uh, the intelligence back into your crm hmm. uh, where your sellers are living we push it back to your marketing automation so you can run campaigns of it uh, there are certain customers who want to do more bi uh, you know analytics on top of data so we push them some raw data back to their ftp to their secure uh, servers depending on what a customer wants there are several delivery mechanisms for the data what was it like to go from your own servers to then to cloud and then eventually to containers and 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 uh, kubernetes like how long did it take you to do that migration i mean pretty much uh, from the beginning uh, the only uh, 
non-cloud stuff we were doing was local development. We, you know, this is like 2013. We each bought like a computer from like, or we built it uh, sitting under like a desktop, sitting <laughs> under the desk and the monitor and we were building stuff and we had like a local network setup. So everybody's computer was part of the like the Hadoop distributed file system for testing locally. <laughs> uh, but uh, most of our, uh, everything actually we were running was in AWS cloud from the very beginning. Oh, okay. Wow. Uh, we were in Y Combinator, so we got a lot of credits to get started with AWS. So, you know, did not have to spend out of company's pocket at the time. And, you know, obviously it's just like setting up EC2 instances and like running your scripts on top of it and, you know, all the old school DevOps work that, you know, I used to do. And then, you know, with Ansible automation and like now the new ways of setting up servers. Obviously, Kubernetes has made things really easy to set up. We have many of those clusters running. The transformation to Kubernetes was about, you know, five years ago where you know, it was still early. So we had to learn a lot. And, you know, I'm sure their APIs are still changing. Uh, but it was still a you know, coming from that Mesos world, knowing that, hey, this system works, going to a much stable, widely mm -hmm. adopted uh, container orchestration system was always on our mind. And, you know, we have made that uh, leap. Actually, we don't have Mesos running anymore. And, you know, we have many clusters of Kubernetes running. We are investing a lot in like, you know, scaling and going up and down and saving money and between spot and on demand. So now, now that's what we invest time in and without worrying about how to run containers. Got it. And, uh, you know, eventually, of course, uh, I'd love to hear about how things are changing and what are you doing to prepare your team for, you know, whatever's happening with Gen AI and stuff. But in general, did you go from a monolithic architecture to microservices based or were you always kind of disaggregated and containerized? friendly to begin with obviously in the very beginning we had like uh, two or three services only right mm -hmm. and we had we had stuff running on ec2 and we had some deployment scripts which would like package the the artifacts ship it and deploy it but pretty soon we realized that hey the world is moving to microservices we need to make it easy for our developers to build and deploy stuff uh, in the microservice environment so you know we invest started investing in containerization and figuring out you know how we could deploy it and at that same time like kubernetes was coming in so with the with using docker and kubernetes we were able to now blow up our monolith into microservices mm -hmm. and a lot of them and now each team is responsible for their own service and scaling and managing and like building and deploying the service so the confluence of technologies and like, you know, what you can foresee as being your challenges really helped uh, in like making the transition to microservices. That's one thing I'd love to understand. Like I remember uh, when I was much closer to product development, at least uh, when, you know, we were shipping products outside of cloud, it used to be a backend team and then there's a front-end team. And then there's, of course, the front-end team had the design team and so on. How do you, first of all, how big is the engineering team? Are you able to share? We have about uh, 200 engineers. 200? Yeah. So how do you organize a team like that? Is that around feature set? Is that around what exists in the product today? Like, how do you think about organizing your team so that they're all working like a microservice, right? Where they do their own modular mm -hmm. stuff. 
but they all eventually connect at some point. Yeah. How do you think about the organization stuff? So we kind of largely divide the teams into like a platform team and like an application team. I see. So platform teams are responsible for building the common frameworks that you know everybody would use, doing the build and release stuff, building the API frameworks and security frameworks and logging framework and all that stuff happens on the platform layer. And they are obviously taking requirements from the developers who are working on the applications that are customer-facing to make sure that they are not repeating the cycle over and over again. So then they can just start a service and then they get all the scaffolding built in. And the vertical teams or the application teams are divided into the various products that we sell. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we have largely, uh, we, we are like, Persona based, so we have a marketing focused product, we have a sales focused product, we have operations focused product. So, kind of like split them into those pillars right now. And they also have domain experience, or do they have experience on a certain part of the product? Yeah, so uh, obviously, before joining Six Sense, a lot of people don't have any sales or marketing experience as a developer. But, you know, once they come in, they are like mostly working on their area. Obviously, we try to rotate people uh, too, so that they are like getting some variety across products and services. Even with the marketing, we have like sub areas. There's like advertising, there's like email, there's, uh, you know, reporting analytics. So people spend a lot of time like getting going deep into their area uh, before they move on to something else. And typically... When, when you have a platform team, are they the one also responsible for, for let's say, the data aspect of it? Because I'm assuming the data aspect is pretty big. Like, are you able to share what's the size of data that gets generated or processed on a daily basis or a monthly basis? You know, I, I would uh, approximate it to like probably like few hundred uh, or maybe like hundred terabytes of data that we you know, move around on a daily basis. Oh, wow. Uh, we probably get like a few terabytes coming in and then we process it and then we make, you know, derive different signals from it so that like blows it up. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's a, a lot of data. Obviously not, we don't keep everything, but we generate a lot and then we uh, discard a bunch of it. And is that also disaggregated across the different teams or is it the <clears throat> platform team that says, no, the data aspect is entirely on the platform side and here a bunch of governance and access rules or am I thinking about it differently? Yeah, so the platform team, uh, you know, including the big data team is responsible for making sure we have a healthy uh, environment that people can run their jobs on, Mm -hmm. right? And then the individual application teams or even people from some platform teams can write their jobs and make it part of the DAG that I was earlier telling you about. So, you know, they're like, oh, I'm already running this signal. I need to do something additional on top of it. So they can either update it or they can add a new job and make it part of the pipeline. So it is, you know, the platform is mainly responsible for making sure we have a stable, secure platform and then people can build on top. And so if, you, if you're doing 100 terabytes a day, do you also have some, some like a, at any given point of time, you have like, Eight, ten, hundred petabytes of data, and I'm assuming you continue to archive stuff as well, yeah. or you know, sunset them, whatever you call it. So, what's the total size? Is 
Yeah, we have like probably 10 to 15 petabytes of data sitting in like uh, wow. you know, storage like S3 and you know, HDFS combined. So if you were to categorize that data, like the 10, 12 petabytes of data, would you say most of them are structured or unstructured or fast moving or slow moving? Like, do you think about data in that way or do you think of it more from an application perspective? Like, I don't really care. I My application need is to get this data and I need it in a few milliseconds or whatever. Yeah, so we pretty much, uh, I would say it's like mostly structured data. We convert it to structured. So once we get it in different forms from our partners and customers, uh, you know, everything is like a hive table, right? I uh, see. Kind of. So then you should be able to query it, you should be able to join it to anything else and derive some signals on top of it. Wow. So most of the data is in structured and you said it's in hive table. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming, uh, do you still use MySQL or? Oh, we absolutely use MySQL. As I said, it's like like our what we call a small data ecosystem is MySQL, right? So um, all our customers' metadata is sitting in there. All the job metadata is sitting in there. We still have a decently sized MySQL to run the, you know, the metadata layer. But all this data is sitting in, the big data is sitting in like Hive. So majority of the data is in Hive, some in MySQL. I know you have single store as well. Mm -hmm. Where does that fit in? Like, how do you think of the data architecture today versus in the future? And and why have multiple databases, so to speak? Like uh, Hive, I kind of get it. MySQL, I also kind of get it more transactional use cases, like more rights. And then, of course, single store. Love to hear more how you're using it. But tell me a little bit about the data architecture landscape and how do you think about it from the end user's perspective? One way to consume data from SixSense is go to our UI mm-hmm. and you're a marketer, salesperson, operations. There are different UIs you can get in and do different things like create campaigns mm-hmm. or like create a segment of accounts or segment of people or get some details about an account or the, all the accounts that you own. Right? And that's like a joint statement from a bunch of different tables under the hood. Exactly, right. Now, uh, we want to make that experience really fast for someone to come in the UI and like get the data out. So traditionally, we have figured out the right purpose-built databases for different use cases. So uh, we have, uh, you know, a Presto slash Trino clusters running that can, you know, re- do the fast querying of data between not only data just sitting in Hive itself or sitting in S3 along with HDFS, but also maybe do a join to MySQL uh, at the same time and return that output to our customer. We have, there are certain UIs where we want to be like even faster, where there is not a a scope of a lot of exploration. It is like pre-canned in many ways, like Mm -hmm. the data. So we we put an edge base there. We said, okay, you have to do a lot of like data engineering to say, okay, this is how customer is going to access it. This is how our API is going to access it. So let us store the data this way so it is as fast as possible. And uh, so we, we had those two ecosystems where we allow, if you had exploratory data, we would like put you on like the Prestos layer if it was more canned, like the edge base layer. But you could see that there was like data fragmentation. The same data was sitting in two different places. And if you update it in one place, you have to make sure you update in the second place. 
So that's where, you know, we brought in like Singer Store to say, let's just move all our UIs to one data uh, lake and everybody gets a consistent view. There's only one copy. So we process everything on our Hive and Spark uh, ecosystem. And then we take the, you know, subset of the process data, move it to Singer Store, and that's the customer's access point. I see. And when you say move the data, is it some sort of an ETL job that's running yeah. outside the databases, pulling the data, doing something with it, and then sending it over to single store? Or is it like a, a pipeline inside of single store that is pulling the data and doing some transformations on the fly? Our Hive and Spark system are, are processing data. They're combining data sets. They are deriving signals. And once it's put into like a final table in the Hive ecosystem, we ETL it into single store uh, using uh, pipelines or load data, whatever is best for that particular source. So we have like, again, hundreds of tables in single store that we are pulling data into from different tables in Hive. And what was the reason for single store versus doing all of this in MySQL or, or Presto as the front layer to MySQL and Hive? Presto is great uh, for doing exploration, but if you if you want like the sub hundred millisecond response times for like complex queries, uh, it definitely does not perform as well. There are concurrency issues. You need a lot more hardware to get that uh, really fast response times. MySQL cannot store the amount of data that we output, so it, that's why we had the Hive layer to store tables. So if we were to build those really fast UIs, you know, like we did for HBase, we were not able to do it with Presto. That's why we had HBase going in. Mm -hmm. So it just did not work for the right use case. So that's why we wanted to get something else that would work. So knowing, actually I have two questions. One I'm very curious about because of my own personal experience. Let's, let's go with that. So if I'm building an application today from scratch, right? I choose MySQL or I choose Postgres. Let's first, for this example, let's say I use MySQL. At one point, what point do I start to think about how much data should it be storing? Or what's kind of the point where I need to think about, okay, I need something else? Like, what are some of those triggers that go through my mind to say I have outgrown MySQL? One is if you are a multi tenant environment, Right, and you are pulling a lot of data from your customers. So, have multiple customers accessing their parts of the data. Yeah, exactly. And you would have customers with different sizes of data, and you don't really, you can't really like uh, provision the right capacity all the time, because you don't know how customers' data is going to change, how much is going to improve especially when you want to store a lot of historical data and you want the customers to be able to do historical analysis on the top of the data, or even internally you want to do it, right? Uh, MySQL is great for doing like few million, hundred million writes a day. But if you want to do like billions of rows of insertion and be able to query it really fast, you're going to run into troubles. And as you said earlier, you do partitioning and sharding and this and that. And that's a lot of overhead. I know Facebook where you were mentioning some company you were working at, Facebook had hired like some MySQL guru to, yeah. you know, build out a very complex MySQL environment and make source code changes to MySQL, right? So, you know, it's very evident that you are not going to be able to scale your business if you're storing the raw data in MySQL. 
So second part of the question, let's say knowing what you know, everything today, if you were to, let's say, build SixthSense today, how would you choose your data architecture? I would not change a lot, right? Uh, our Hive and Spark ecosystem is pretty strong. We are very happy with it. Obviously, we are upgrading it to the latest versions. They have their own strengths and weaknesses between Hive and Spark. You know, we love both of them. We have, been, we have had experience. They are great for doing like the big data, like manipulation and like processing. We even do machine learning through it. So it's very versatile. We have written a lot of like custom functions uh, to process in during the processing, right? You know, like you can add a MySQL function to say normalize a string. That's very simple thing that we have written in high, but we also done very complex things uh, that are possible in that ecosystem. A MySQL still stays because we still need to store the metadata and you know keep it fast moving and do those small inserts. There's also a lot evolving in the Hive ecosystem in terms of like the file formats. So we'll probably go to some uh, you know Delta file format like a hoodie or there's another one that is hmm. keeping my mind where we can actually make like little changes to files after we write them which is not available in the traditional Hive or like a Parquet or ORC system. So that is definitely going to be a big data system, whether we run it in-house or on some cloud, uh, where we do run on a cloud, but whether we uh, run it directly on EC2 or Kubernetes environment or EMR, that is something we would like, again, look at and figure out where what is the most cost-effective, less maintenance for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and uh, then I would still figure out what is the best database for a customer to interact with the solution and how much interaction they need. And which one, in your experience, works for most of the requirements? Yeah, so you know we have uh, extensively tested uh, single store for a lot of our use cases. And when we were doing uh, the research and we were in the POC phase, we were working with uh, two other vendors, uh, maybe three other vendors. And, uh, you know, everybody had their own strengths and weaknesses. Single store obviously stood out because of the HTAP capabilities. We were, we, we can do a MySQL within single store and not need a MySQL. We are not there yet, personally, because it takes time to get there. But we definitely found it great for running like large scale, uh, analytical queries on top of the data and still return it you know, in a transactional like time period, right? We can do very complex things. We can architect the data the right way and we can achieve the right results, which are not possible with a lot of the traditional systems. So kind of a newbie question because I'm not very familiar with Spark. So Hive, I get it. It's like a in at a very abstract level, it's like a SQL table. So I can run SQL Correct. queries, right? But under the hood, it's like an HDFS. Yeah, it's like a file. file right? system. It can be a CSV yeah. file, whatever, and you can still treat it as like a SQL, like a table. That's that's beautiful. So yeah. I have a very large uh, set of data sitting in a file system-ish, and I'm running SQL off of that, which is where Hive is. Spark, can you explain it to me? What, what does it do? What do you use it for? Is it like a cron job, but in Java, or is it more like an end-to-end application that pulls the data, does something, and then deposits somewhere else? There are a lot of similarities between Spark and Hive, and they actually work off the same metadata, right? So when you create a Hive table, there is a Hive meta store which tells it what are the columns and what are the data types, etc. Uh-huh. 
So Hive is kind of an execution engine on top of your files. Spark is a complementary execution engine. Now you can, you know, write uh, Spark SQL just mm -hmm. like you write Hive SQL, and it, they are pretty much compatible with each other with minor changes. Or you can actually write Python or Java code in Spark and treat your files as data frames and you can do the similar operation. So with Spark, you can, when you write code, you can now write unit tests and you can write like other stuff around it that makes it easier to understand and maintain and improve and test or you can use Spark SQL. So there are options with Spark uh, and there are multiple languages you can write code in. But basically the it does the same thing as Hive in some way. It you know it runs execution on top of one or multiple tables and creates an output on top of it. Got it. So maybe uh, is it so? What I really like about what you just said is like I can use Python and similar to pandas, I can create data frame. But there is where I use Spark, mm -hmm. and the syntax for getting that data is through SQL. Right, which is coming in through Spark framework itself, or I could choose the Hive. Yeah, I mean, if you write, write Python code, you can just say, "Hey, here's the you know Hive table that, and now load it in a data frame. Here's another Hive table, load in a data frame, join it based on this column, I see. do this kind of aggregate, do this kind of operation, and write it back to this like new table, and you can write that in like Python." Okay, makes sense. The, let's talk a little bit about the deployment side, right? Because uh, I think what you just said blew my mind in terms of hundred million containers. I'm still thinking about it. How do you do? How do you do deployments then, or how do you do releases? Like, do you get a feature from a certain team and it's now in production as soon as somebody does a PR and it gets committed and it's get approved, and then your customers have that feature, or do you say? No, I'm going to have another replication of my entire environment somewhere else. And then I have questions about what about that six or 10 petabytes of data. And then you accumulate all your releases and then in a standard way, then move it into production. Like, how do you think about deployment in this such a massive scale? Yeah, so uh, developers start off with their own uh, local development. Right, and they create like feature branches. Then they once a bunch of developers on the same team have like things ready to test in like a dev environment. Then they create like a special branch, which builds like containers for their services automatically. And then they deploy to that branch, where they you know bunch of testing happens. QA is spending its time, and now like once a month it's release time, right? And at that point, uh, we. You know, Cut a release branch, uh, code gets merged into it, uh, and you know test it again. Uh, automation and all that stuff is happening, and then uh, it gets merged uh, into the trunk. Containers get built, and now developers do the deployments. Uh, there are also cases where there are auto deploys happening for our pipelines and stuff, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you know. Generally, we are just deploying on top of Kubernetes and there are like rollbacks and all those things available. But we generally coordinate our releases around a particular time of the month, especially for like big features. Things go behind feature flags. So not every customer immediately gets it. You know, some things go in beta, some things go in like uh, direct to production. So 
the different uh, phases for different features. So when I think about you know millions, and, yeah. yeah, and sorry, and you asked about data. So we don't have everybody's data in the dev environment. So a lot of it is also creating synthetic data and like testing it with different scenarios. And then we have our own data, so we can use that as a guinea pig. And then we have like test environments that we have set up, so we can simulate as much as possible for the different integrations. Somebody has Salesforce, somebody has Mercado, Eloqua, HubSpot. All those environments can be like tested. So when I think about millions of containers, to me, it's like almost like a beehive where you are maybe standing 100 feet away and looking at the whole thing. Do you have some sort of a thing like that where you say, okay, these are all my containers, there's an issue here or something seems to be going off over here, let's go look at it. Is it like that or is it a very different way of looking at where to look at the issues, how to, and then assign it to the right engineer and get that fixed? Yeah. So observability is the key, right? If you cannot see what's happening, you cannot like fix it, you cannot understand what's going on. We do have multiple Kubernetes clusters, but the web service cluster is not millions of containers. It's like a few hundred. Right? Each service has multiple replicas. And you know we use a bunch of tools like uh, Datadog and other uh, logging services so we can have visibility. And we have a lot of like alerts and like, trigger setup for things that are happening, page pages going off, and we should be able to trace back exactly to where the problem is happening, who is responsible for it, page the right team, right escalation paths. We should be able to see the metrics. Is it a container level issue? Is it a database issue, code issue, whatever it is, and trace it back to you know the line of code. So switching gears a little bit now, I'm uh, thinking a little bit like a marketer or go-to-market person. And, and we talk a lot about, hey, if you are a technology company, let's say a lot of the tech startups are technology companies, and they end up selling to other technology companies like yours. How does the decision-making hap- happen around what you end up buying, right? So for example, I remember when I was doing this stuff, by the time I'd left, it was about, okay, let me just go give it a try on my own. So I go look for a free trial, I try it, and if it works, I quickly build my own prototype and the next sprint, I go show it to my manager or the product manager, and then we say, okay, now we think it's the right solution, let's go talk to the sales team or something like that. Is that kind of sort of how it works in large engineering teams or is the buying process or evaluation completely different like how how does that machine work yeah it, it's a great question and uh, i can speak to how we do uh, stuff at six cents because with the uh, advent of like you know all the privacy regulations and compliance and myriad of like things that have uh, propped up in the last several years it's very important for our legal and uh, security teams to understand what data is being sent where, especially when you are using a SaaS platform, right? Mm. You Are you sending any customer data? PII. Any PII or even customer names or IDs or like email addresses of your users or anything if you are sending to a vendor that you're using that comes un- under heavy scrutiny. So we always have a gate uh, even for doing POCs to first you know, get the right people involved to understand how we're going to use the product in terms of the safety and privacy of the data. 
and then it is about the scale and the cost and like there are obviously build versus buy conversations and uh, you know if this is going to scale with the number of customers it's going to scale with number of engineers it's going to scale with number of ec2 instances or kubernetes clusters or you know various different pricing models right everybody has so all those go into uh, consideration obviously we talk to vendors we understand we know our pain points we try to find two or three that we can do pocs with make sure legal and privacy is aligned then we do the pocs and then the contracting process starts so is that you and the leadership team that decides that okay this is the direction we are headed now let's go and do the evaluation or is it more ground up user developer up where they try it out or where is that yeah it, it is mostly uh, a strategic direction for the you know engineering team saying hey this is these are the problems we want to solve and let's go and find some solutions and some people are given the charter to go and find them uh, sometimes developers will come with a uh, great ideas to say hey i i you know i use this personal tool but i think this is great if everybody else can use it so let's so then we go into that evaluation too and so from your perspective what what's like an ideal way of uh, making a purchase or making a decision on a purchase like do you think about it oh i want to go talk to somebody and really have a deep dive conversation and a poc for a month or is that changing or has it not changed i i think it will depend on the product that we are buying let's say i'm i'm buying a database that one of us has experience with and we know that it is the right use case for us then we would tr- try to short circuit that process as much as possible and like we know that these are the only two vendors we need to talk to hmm. if we are trying to go into like a new market where we are saying hey let's find a new age let's say logging vendor or new age observability vendor then we have to really go and do deep dives with their sales and uh, sc teams to understand why are they different how will they help us solve the problem will they actually save us money or it's going to go the other way around etc as obviously time evolves people have experience with different things so we would just like how can i try that as fast as possible is it available via aws marketplace i don't have to talk to anybody uh, so that's like the most ideal scenario but if not then you know Yes, running a sales cycle is fine. So let's talk about what everybody is talking about for last one year now. It's the last section of the of this topic. Gen AI. How is that changing the both the development and deployment process? Like, I'm sure, or maybe I'm not sure, but have a lot of people started using GitHub Copilot or PyCharm if you're using that IDE uh, to generate code and how is that changing how fast you ship the quality of the code how how is that changing and where do you see that going we are uh, we are definitely in the evaluation process right now uh, a couple of uh, engineering leaders are taking that mantle and we want to improve developer productivity and you know figure out the right way to like ship and increase our velocity so uh, we are also looking at vendors to like do the whole sdlc cycle like i mean i think github copilot is a great example we already have using github so we can add the licenses so we are testing that out to see how how do you find the quality of the code currently coming out of github copilot uh, 
uh, I cannot speak to it much right now because I'm not that involved. Somebody sure. else is. But I've heard good things uh, in general from people who have tried it out. And that's why we are investing our time. I think this year is going to be uh, where we actually get it deployed as fast as possible and improve the time it takes to ship something. Do you think it will change the process or the way you ship stuff in any way? Uh, I think it will change, uh, you know, the definitely the boilerplate stuff. It will help people write tests better, uh, things that they don't think about. Maybe the code can give you a better idea of what else you could be testing, what are the edge cases. And hopefully we can also inform the, the AI about like, how we would like to write code and you know it can help the developer adhere to a particular standard and make sure that now code can be readable across the whole company hmm. uh, and not just by the three people who wrote it. And from your end customer perspective, do you see a lot of asks or requests from your customers about Gen AI capabilities or do you see that change in pattern of how they currently use your product like Sixth Sense or even how they do their business? Yeah, so uh, for what, uh, what is important for our customers, the Sixth Sense gives them the right insight and gives them the insight very quickly. Hmm. So we are, you know, we have a lot of different products where people come in and like they infer the data from what we're showing. Now it is our responsibility to help them do that faster. So now we are bringing in Gen AI to give them the right summary, to help them to ask questions of the data right from within the product without having to you know, think about it more or like open a support ticket or like ask their CSM, right? We want them to interact uh, with AI to mm -hmm. say, hey, I, I look at this company or I look at this segment of companies. This is what I see. What is the meaning of this? Or what can I do next? What is the right channel that I should activate based on uh, what I am, what you are showing me? So customers are, you know, looking forward for ways where we can make their lives easier. So from your perspective, somebody that has a very vested interest in the data itself, because that's what powers the company and the product, like how do you think about the value of data? Like for you, what is more valuable? Is it data that just was born right now or data that was a year old. So recency of data. The second could be around the kind of data it is. The third is how accessible or accessible as in, you know, can you access it through SQL, JSON, and other stuff? Like, how do you think about uh, that changing, like the value of data? Like, first of all, like, how do you think about what is the value of data? And how do you see that changing with Gen AI, if at all in any way? Yeah, so we uh, we put a lot of value on like historical data because that's what the machine needs to know to understand the trends that have happened in the past, so that it can inform the future and help you do more better things in the future. So, for example, uh, you know your past historical website visitation mm -hmm. data, like what are people doing on your website? Right? What are they clicking on? What are the high-value pages? Does that lead to converting into an opportunity? When you open opportunities, what are you doing with them? The opportunity history. So 
when we are onboarding customers, we are trying to get as much as historical data from them. And then obviously the third party vendors are sending us historical data so we can like help the customer immediately with the value of like historical data that we have collected. And then as new data is coming in real time, as people are visiting their website, we can like immediately tell them who it is, how they can act uh, with that particular visitor. So all data is important, right? Um, we have static data like your CRM accounts and leads and contacts, but yeah. then all your intent data that is coming in, um, advertising data, third-party intent data from like big and small partners. So it's a big, uh, you know, da- data lake. When I heard that <laughs> uh, uh, word the first time, I'm like, well, yeah, we do have a data lake, and it, you know, we have to now manage it to make sure it does not spill over. I mean, uh, it's very interesting because I've been thinking about uh, similarly what you just said. So just to paraphrase, or at least the way I understand, what you're saying is the richness and the volume of data is primarily important. Like if you just had very scanty data about somebody, then that's not very useful. So you want to have the richness and the volume. And then on top of that, you want to have the recency of the data. Like, what did that person just do, which gives me the intent? Is that a fair Yeah, exactly, right. If, you, if you're if you a very new company, you don't have enough opportunities, you don't have enough accounts to go after, then, you know, you would not be able to use certain part of a product. You would not, the machine learning piece would not be the best thing for you. You should do something else with it. Um, but if you have, you know, have a lot of historical data, then we can derive better insights. We also have, uh, you know, ways to like fill in the blanks and like infer things based on what we have seen across our customer base to help someone who does not have enough, but will only go so far. When you think about generative AI or large language model, are you thinking about using it within your own engineering process as well, like around your data? Like, do you ever think, oh, because we have 10 petabytes of data, we should eventually have our own large language model? Or do you think about, uh, no, I'm going to use this with an existing open AI or something like that, and then embellish that data and use it for something different? Like, have you started thinking about that in any ways? Yeah, it's more of the latter. Uh, you know, we uh, our data science team does a lot of experiments with the uh, external systems like open AI, Llama, uh, et cetera. And, now there are so many options available in the market to like run LLMs in the cloud and like they will host multiple layers. So we just don't want to take on that time and effort and the cost to like figure out what to do with RAG, uh, you know, helping uh, improve the quality of the output. Uh, we are just like doing a lot of experiments to see what is the best tool to use out there to solve a problem that we have. And do you personally, or, or from your team, do you have a verdict on which model is still the best, like between open sources as well as the commercial ones? I think we are still seeing OpenAI's uh, model uh, be like the best for most of our use cases. That's what I keep hearing from others yeah. as well. And it's not just the quality, I think it's just the whole product, the quality of the product, like the features they add and how quickly they add. and. Mm-hmm just the quality of results that come back. That's pretty interesting. But you mentioned uh, you looked at Llama too, like uh, the 70 billion model as well. I think so, yeah. The the team experimented and then, 
you know, we were figuring out, okay, now we have to, how do we deploy it and how do we make sure it runs at scale? And then like, okay, it's open AI is giving similar or better results. Uh, the cost might actually be the same or even less. Let's just like go with that. And, you know, if things go out of hand, we will we'll keep doing things in the background to understand what else can we use. We'll always have like a backup ready, right? OpenAI thankfully did not implode with all that craziness that happened a few months ago. But that's something we have to be ready for, right? If some, their pricing model changes or the quality of the output changes, like we always should have something else that can like step in in place. Yeah, I mean, that, that's where I feel where the world is headed. It's pretty interesting uh, in, in terms of, you know, how we went from monolithic to microservices. I see that uh, a lot of this is moving towards agent-oriented, but agent being you have access to one large learning, one large language model, and you have your own knowledge or your own data source, and then you have your own tools. So then you have one agent that is specialized for doing something because just like you were saying earlier, it has its own depth of knowledge, but also the recency of data that is coming in. So it's it's I'm particularly very interested to see where that goes. But since you mentioned RAG, uh, this probably would be the last question. Um, how do you see that? Like, do you do you have plans of using vector semantic search? And do you have plans of evaluating how to change or evolve your architecture to accommodate for uh, or to, you know, be ready for RAG? So one of the things that we are like, uh, we already have uh, on our, we create a Slack bot for our support team. So uh, when the customer asks a question, uh, support team will add the, ask the bot the question, which will do a... Nice. Uh, rag search on like the content that they have created yeah, and give them the answers along with few links and we give it to the customer. So that's just the internal testing. But eventually the phase is the customer actually access, has access to it, right? Mm-hmm. All our internal teams, SCs, CSMs, but now even the customer can ask questions instead of opening support tickets, right? And that comes from all the knowledge base that not only we add to uh, you know, what we call the Revcity, which is our knowledge base, but also every other customer who is adding knowledge to it. So it's coming from our own data set, but it's answering the question right away. So are you using vectors for that, I'm assuming? Yes. And yes. where are you storing those vectors? How are you creating those? Yeah, vectors? so thankfully we have single store, so we just did not have oh. to procure anything else, right? Oh. You know, we started experimenting. Uh, and I don't think we have still gone to the latest 8.5 ANN, but... Uh, they are using uh, 8.1 somewhere and uh, getting the right results and like vectorizing and asking, uh, then sending it to OpenAI. Just to be clear, I was not uh, I was not aware that single so was it, but I was hoping that you knew that. Oh yeah, it has vectors and you can do mix and match of data right in one SQL statement. Yes. So, and the other nice piece is it has uh, pipelines that can bring in your existing incidents and issues and vectorize it and put it into the knowledge base as well. Oh, okay. So when somebody's asking, you have the freshest of data. Like if there's a incident going on, you're able to tell them, oh, by the way, tell the customer that there's, you know, this currently going on and you can answer questions related to that. We will look into that. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Pramal. I've learned so much. 
Um, couple of quick questions and then we can end the show. What's your favorite code editor? Is it VS Code? Is it Vim? Oh, I'm oh. a uh, JetBrains uh, Java IDE, which has a Python plugin. So like I can do everything. PyCharm and yeah. WebStorm, the whole yeah. JetBrains. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so but, so luckily the the Java editor now has Python plugin, so I don't need to open both. Oh, nice! That's been around for like maybe a couple of years. Um, so I do all my editing in there: Java code, Python code, SQL. And JetBrains, I I saw that they also added like the AI feature, very similar to Copilot. Yeah, I've not used that yet. You know, fortunately, I don't have to do a lot of coding these days. But <laughs> I'm just like reviewing code. I'm looking at stuff. It's called IntelliJ. The name came to me. Yeah. I see. Okay. Second question is, if you were to tell somebody in school, in college, what to focus on when coming into an engineering job today or even two years from now, what are the three things you would tell that uh, that kid to know and learn and be really good at? I would say being a, kind of like a full stack person is pretty important these days. You should be able to understand the concepts of like data and storage and like, you know, at least the basics, have a backing database to build an application on top of it, able to write some backend APIs, backend code, and then build a decent looking UI on top of it. That actually gives you an idea of like what is involved end to end in like building an application. This is just, again mm-hmm. a web application, right? There obviously you can do mobile and this and that. But, uh, you know, versus being just focused on I only do X versus Y, uh, you need the versatility. Uh, a lot of employers are looking for that. And it also helps you personally. You, you know, you can be independent. You can be the you know, person that people can go to and say, hey, I need to build the full cycle. And you are the person behind it. And I, I think uh, these days it's probably important to understand, uh, you know, what's happening in the AI world. And at least being able to experiment and play around with it a little bit, I'm sure a lot of tools are available for people to try out, uh, to write code, to do do shopping lists or do like uh, planning an itinerary. So being familiar with uh, what's happening in the world with like the new age technologies. Very good. And then uh, last question, what do you like to do most outside of work? A lot of decompression, uh, hanging out with the kids, uh, um, watching some you know TV shows, uh, watching f- uh, sports. Sometimes go and uh, hit up the go karting track. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Pramil. I, I think this was phenomenal. I've learned so much. I'm gonna go back and then take some notes because <laughs> there were some really good uh, nuggets out of that. But really appreciate it. And like I said. Genuinely, I love the product and what you folks are doing. So, looking forward and rooting for you. Thank you. Appreciate that. All right. Yeah, and, and we love your product too. <laughs> All right. Thank you.